0: preparing Israel to meet none other than the Lord, than God, Yahweh, says verse 3. But church, what was astounding was where we left it last week. And that was with John proclaiming to the religious leaders of Israel that his ministry was only a foretaste of what was to come when the kingdom of heaven had broken in. He symbolically washed people's sin away with water but as he said in verses 11 and 12 one would come after him who was more powerful and he would baptise people with the Holy Spirit and fire. So that's where we left it last week. We left it in the wilderness with a spiritual awakening and a rugged mountain man preaching to the masses that they needed to repent, that they needed to come to God himself, that they needed to put their trust in his mercy, uh, that they needed to turn from their ways of doing things and that they needed to be washed clean in the rivers of the Jordan before they met their king who was bringing in his kingdom. So let's pick it up from these verses and figure out what's happening here and see just why Jesus is indeed not only the king of Israel, but the king of God's kingdom. Okay, so if you have your text in front of you, let's uh, look at chapter 3, verse 11. So this is John, John, uh, the lone prophet in the wilderness of Israel. And he says, I baptise you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now the first thing that needs to be said here is that all genuine prophets that have been sent of God never go out of their way to point to themselves or to their own ministry. But as we see all throughout scripture, They not only point away from themselves, but to the coming Messiah. For example, take Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Here you have a a well-educated and highly respected servant of the Babylonian royal house. And though he was gifted in visions and interpretation of dreams, he preached to the Jews that there was one who was coming in the clouds of heaven. Daniel then goes on to say of this son of man, as he called him, that he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you hear that? You have one of the most influential, gifted prophets in the Old Testament age. Not just respected by the Jews, mind you, but even by Gentile tyrants who were looking to him for advice. And who does he point to? Well, he points away from himself. And for all people to look for the coming messianic kingdom, whose king will bring in a kingdom that will last forever and never be destroyed. King David was the same. He was not only known as Israel's king, but called by the apostles a prophet whom the Holy Spirit spoke through to the Jewish people. It's in the Psalter that you have the king of Israel writing prolific poetry that the Israelites collected and they would sing, either in the temple in Jerusalem or on the Sabbath at synagogue. But listen to these words of King David in Psalm 110. He writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, you you hear it here. You have one of the most influential men to ever live in the ancient world and one of the most influential prophets that Israel ever knew. But Who does he point people to? He's not talking about himself here. He's pointing the people of God to look out for the coming Messiah, who David said was his Lord. church, we we get a bit of insight into this, uh, why the prophets did this in Peter's first letter to the church. He explains in chapter 1, verses 10 uh, through to 12, saying, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And church, that's exactly what John was doing in his ministry. Though incredibly influential and though seen as many as a candidate for the Messiah, he spent his ministry out there in the wilderness, not pointing to himself, but preparing Israel for the kingdom of heaven by getting them ready to meet Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, who John even confessed that he wasn't even good enough to be a slave for. Now, what did the spirit of Christ in him reveal? We see it in the rest of verses 11 and 12. He says that he, the Messiah, will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There's a couple of things that we need to understand here to get what John is saying to the original people that he was preaching to. First, the Messiah is going to baptise people with the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to understand the gravity of just what John is saying here. He's saying that the Messiah is going to pour the very Spirit of God on people. Now, why might that be hugely, hugely significant? Because who on earth could ever imagine giving God's spirit to people? Who in their right mind could fathom telling God where he was to be and who he was to purify? I mean, if that doesn't hit you right between the eyes, I don't know what will. But that's John's revelation here of the Messiah. That's what he is saying here with the very spirit of Christ revealing this to him, mind you. He's saying that the Messiah would purify people that's what baptism symbolized here we saw that last week not with water but with the very spirit of God that's the picture we're meant to see here that's the picture that John is giving to Israel when he says that the Messiah will baptize people with the spirit he's saying that the Messiah will give the very spirit of God to people and those people will be purified before the living God. Now, with that said, John isn't just pulling this from his own imagination, as we've seen, but he's heavily drawing on all these promises that were given throughout the Old Testament about the Spirit of God coming. For example, he would be poured on people. We see this in Joel 2, verses 28 to 29. He would change people's hearts, Ezekiel 36, 26. He would circumcise people's hearts, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He would give people a new heart that would love God's law, Jeremiah 31, 33. In other words, it's, it's when the spirit of God is given to people, to, to you and to I, that's when we were born again and made new creatures. That's what it is to be baptised with the Spirit. It's to have Jesus pour the Spirit on us and transform our hearts and purify us before the living God. And incredibly, that's what John is saying in our text here. He's saying that this Messiah, this one to come, he will baptise you with the very Spirit of God and fire. So second, this fire that's involved, this fire that we see uh, here in verse 11, is somehow connected with the Spirit of God and that purifying picture that we have in baptism. So that's a good thing, right? The Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to purify people from their sin by baptising them with the very Spirit of God and purify them with a spiritual fire that will make them clean because that's what fire does. It it purifies. I think we get a glimpse of this in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost uh, when the Spirit was poured out and tongues of fire seemed to appear over the faithful in that incredible prayer meeting in the upper room. But hang on, church. We mustn't forget verse 12, because fire is talked about there as well, but in very, very different terms. You see, John is drawing on a very familiar picture here, a a picture of a, a sermon example, if you will, of a farming technique that was used in the ancient world. Uh, This picture would have terrified people because farming was an incredibly popular occupation uh, in this context. Uh, They definitely would have got what he was saying here. You see, what would happen at harvest time is that the wheat from the fields would be bought in and go through a process called threshing. Now, this happened by having oxen tread on uh, the wheat, which shook the wheat free from the chaff. But there was a problem. It left the wheat in the same heap with the chaff. So, to separate it all, it had to be winnowed. And, And that was the process of getting the wheat separated from the chaff in that same pile. And they did that by getting a big fork and throwing it all in the air. The wheat, which was heavier, would fall straight to the ground, but the chaff, which was lighter, would be blown to the side. Then it was collected because it was good for nothing and thrown in the fire to be burnt. Brothers and sisters, the picture is terrifying. If the winnowing fork is ready in the hand of of the Messiah, as John said it was, then the process of separation was about to begin with the kingdom of heaven breaking in. Those who believed in John's preaching would be met with total and utter purification. But here's the terrifying thing. Those who rejected John's message would be met by the Messiah with a fire That could never be quenched. That's what's being said here. John is saying, in no uncertain terms, that the Messiah is coming to separate those who repent and turn and trust in God for salvation and those who do not. And he says those who do not repent will be met with a fire that will never go out. All this to say, What you have here is this prophet who was preaching and preparing people not only for the coming kingdom of heaven but preparing people to meet the Messiah who is clearly more than just a man. Now this was Yahweh incarnate. That's who we're looking at here. The king of Israel, the one who was bringing in the kingdom of heaven is God himself. And he will give his spirit to all those who put their trust in him and purify them from their stain of sin. But all those who reject and don't turn to him will be met with unquenchable fire of eternal judgment. That is who John is preparing Israel to meet. Her Messiah which was both glorious and terrifying simultaneously. So it's incredibly interesting what we read here next in verses 13 and 14. We read then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him saying I need to be baptised by you and you come to me. Okay so there seems to be an obvious problem here because everything that we've read and come to understand about baptism seems to be thrown on its head here, right? I mean, baptism was about not trusting in your own righteousness and participating in an outward sign of your trust in Yahweh and purification. But then Jesus comes on the scene to do what? Well, we see it in verse 13. It's to be baptised by John. It's it's no wonder that we see John react in the way he does in verse 14. You can imagine it. You have this rugged mountain man with locust legs in his beard, uh, probably with this shocked expression on his face going, but but I need to be baptised by you. Why are you coming to me? Well, admittedly, on first reading, this can seem a bit confusing. But if we understand everything going on here, it's actually incredible to see why Jesus came to be baptised by John. Now, we never want to read scripture out of context. Nor do we ever want to read scripture in a vacuum. No, we have to remember where we have come from where we've come from in this series so far, and remember what Matthew has clearly told us. You see, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And because uh, he is, as Matthew affirmed, God with us, Emmanuel, there is no need for us to think that Jesus had come to repent of sin. Uh, That's clearly not what's happening here. John certainly got that as well. That's why he was trying to deter Jesus and said he needed to be baptised by him. No, the text doesn't even imply that repentance is on view here. But this still begs the question, why did Jesus come to be baptised? Well, we see it in verse 15. In fact, Jesus explains it to us himself. He says... Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. A couple of things to be said here. See, by Jesus saying, Let it be so now, he was saying to John, The time is now, it's not later. And that God's will for the present time is for Jesus to begin his public messianic ministry with John's baptism. Why? Well, in one sense, it was to publicly endorse John's ministry and message and to approve what John had preached about the Messiah and his mission. But I want to go a little further here. You see, Jesus says... He came to John to fulfill all righteousness. I have to confess, there is a lot of discussion over what Jesus meant by that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. But I want to say, and I do want to say this, Jesus being baptized seems to be something that Jesus does so that he is somewhat linked to us, his people. And I say that because what seems to be happening here is what Isaiah said the Messiah would do in the 53rd chapter of his book, which was that there would come a day where a servant would come and he would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. That means in this baptism... Jesus wasn't coming to John to be purified, but had come to be identified with his people. That's right. Jesus was baptised because he was ultimately identifying with his people who are all transgressors. And that is happening here in the Jordan by having the very water that symbolically washed their sin away being symbolically poured onto him. Australian Bible scholar, Leon Morris, he says it like this. Jesus might well have been up there standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. But instead, he was down there with the sinners, the the transgressors, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would in due course accomplish. I know that's a lot, but... With all of that said, Jesus not only endorsed John's message and ministry and linked it to what he was going to fulfil as the more powerful one, but he identifies with us sinners in our mess and with where we are at. He is a merciful high priest. He really is, as Isaiah said all those years ago, Emmanuel, he is God with us. John, he then consents and Jesus was baptised. We read on verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus uh, was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So this is the picture that we have, church. The Son obeyed and the Spirit of God anointed him and the Father announced his Son to the world. And it's here that we see a very public display of what Isaiah prophesied in the 61st chapter of his book, where he said that the spirit of the Lord would be on him, the Messiah, the the servant of God, and he being God will anoint him to preach the good news to the poor and bind the brokenhearted and proclaim freedom to the captives to set free the oppressed. That's why the spirit of God was given to Jesus by the Father. It was for the messianic ministry that was about to take place on this earth, given to Israel's true king of Psalm 2, whose kingdom will never be destroyed, as Daniel said, who will rule from the midst of his enemies, as David prophesied, God's very son, who in a very public coronation received the very spirit of God and was announced by God the Father as the one who was bringing in the very kingdom of heaven. So church, what we have here in our passage before us this morning is an incredible picture of the triune God at work in human history. The Father sent... The son obeyed and the spirit anointed. Why? Well, it's as we have seen all throughout the gospel according to Matthew. God with us has come to us to save us from our sins. And church, Jesus came and obeyed in everything. He is indeed the saviour of the world, absolutely. But we must be clear on this this morning. He is coming again. He is coming as the judge of the world. And in his judgment, there will be wrath against sin. That's the picture that we see in this text. His winnowing fork is in his hand. The axe is laid at the roots of the tree. And all those who don't repent, who dismiss the call of the kingdom, will be met with an unquenchable fire. And church, this is the essence of the gospel and of the kingdom of heaven that we've seen this morning. Jesus isn't just some hippie where it's all well, so don't worry about it. No, he's a king. He is a righteous king who is wholly set against sin. And we all, all of us in this room have sin in our lives and deserve wrath and judgment and death. This is why we call Jesus Savior. Why Matthew said of him that he is the one who will save people from their sin. Because Jesus came all those years ago to take our place, to take our punishment, and to take the wrath that we all deserve on the cross. That's why Jesus came. Not to give good financial advice. Not to set a great example of a spiritual guru, but to be crucified for our wickedness, for his people, and to purify us with his spirit. So that we might be saved from eternal punishment and an unquenchable fire that is coming. And That is good news, church. That is good news for all those who put their trust in Jesus. You have been purified before the living God and your death sentence has been paid in full. So I have to say this, brothers and sisters. We must, like John and the prophets before him, have a similar witness in this world. Not of wearing interesting clothes or doing weird and wonderful miracles, but to be a voice in our generation. to to be a voice in the spiritual wilderness that is Australia, not crying out about our rights or about our wants or personal preferences with the way we want things done, but to be a voice that proclaims Jesus is Lord, Jesus is saviour to the world. All the prophets of God, all the people in the body of Christ, we're all called to point to Jesus because he is what we are about. The world doesn't need to hear about a, a national leader, a, a specific denomination, or a political movement. The, the world needs to hear about Jesus, and that's because only Jesus, only Jesus, saves people from their sin. The church has so many servants, but only one hero, and it's before him that every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord one day. As we saw in Psalm 2, some will do it uh, to their joy, but others to their eternal shame. Might it be our testimony at this church in Armidale that we are known to hold Christ high in our midst, not with just what we say, but with all that we do. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us through your prophets the spirit of Christ in them, revealing to us Christ. And we thank you for the eternal gospel that has been preached to us. I thank you for your servants, Father, that have gone into this world, that have taken the commission seriously, for those that have lost their Lives that have lost their property, have lost their people, sometimes their nation, to hold this message that we hear this morning to the world. I thank you for all those that have faithfully proclaimed you to us here this morning, that you have worked through them to save us from an unquenchable fire. Father, would you use this church? Would you use us in the way that you see fit to be a place that holds Christ high among us? Might we not just talk about it, but do it? Might we be a a people that love you? We ask that you would use us in Jesus' name. Amen.